Welcome, everybody, to the Tech Meme Ride Home Experience. Today is November 3rd, 2021. Um, today, Brian and I are going to be joined by a few guests talking about the creator economy, monetization, what's happening there, what's not happening there. Um, but first, Brian, we are supposed to talk about what, Meta or Snark or OK Boomer mm-hmm. or Zoom? I don't know. Where do you want to start? Well, first of all, I I have the hardest time already calling Facebook Meta. Uh-huh. Does anybody else have that problem? <laughs> um, I mean, even look, everyone still calls Alphabet Google for the most part. Yes. But at least in that instance, uh, they were the first to do it, maybe, and it was more plausible because it's like we're doing these um, these other bets, and and so we're this. At least they made the argument that we're this company that has all of our fingers and all of these pies. It wasn't that it wasn't a PR move that was like, you know what, we're gonna we're gonna move to ping pong because we're we want to be a <laughs> ping pong company. It, it wasn't a PR move, you know. So I, I, today was the first day that I I literally had to call Meta Meta. I heard and that man, it on the show. It, mm-hmm. It, it was annoying. <laughs> I don't did you, know. Did you know, somebody pointed this out to me recently. I don't know. And I feel like it's like, so I'm so daft, but like that alphabet was about alpha bets, you know, like making bets that were pre-beta. Well, also, I mean, look, uh, there's that. And then there was, in theory, I heard one time that there's all these different, if you, if you go through, remember, cause Google venture became GV. So like yes. there literally was an alphabet of things that they were. Oh, it totally made know? sense. And like in a very yeah. googly way, it was sort of like, I don't want to say at their apex, but they were in a very like strong position. The brand was good. Like there wasn't all this like schadenfreude yeah. about like, you know, how they, evil the company was and right. they, this they could be a head fake. They didn't do it as a PR move. They did it as a googly sort of weird. It didn't make a lot of sense, but it wasn't like done out of... Um, you know, I will I say there was like one thing though, especially that I worked on or was near when Google um, was building its social network, it was originally called Google.me. And I remember that there was like this sort of like weird moment where it's like, there's like, you know, Google wave and all the other kind of like Google blank and then noun type of names. Mm-hmm. And then we ended on Google plus now, which obviously pluses are very, um, you know, in yeah, vogue you now, guys were way ahead of the curve, <laughs> but the fact that you could just like drop the thing, if it didn't work out on the one hand was super hedging its bets and saying, well, you know, maybe Google plus eventually is just Google. And so that actually, I think, worked out in their favor. In this case, this really is. And we talked about this on, um, on the show with Alex a couple weeks ago about how this renaming, at least, you know, I take it more as a bet the company type of effort. Like it is a massive signal internally and to the market about what that company is focused on. And yes, there's a media, you know, brand aspect to it. But I think, I don't know, like, there's a timing of it where there's there's resetting expectations and there's a there's a generation that will grow up that either will not have been on Facebook or where Facebook is like this distant memory like an AOL or a MySpace and the further yeah, we get true. away from that the more that we think of this company as you know what Zuck seems to aspire for it to be thought of as so um let, let let's get into uh meta as a as a a move towards a metaverse, what they want us to be thinking of, because then this will transition us into yep. uh, everything else we want to talk about. Yep. Um, so, 
Uh, you, you and I have been talking offline, and you're like, "Well, let's talk, Brian, about your skepticism about the metaverse." And I don't know that that's I don't know that that's necessarily true, except hmm. for the fact that what we're about to talk about for the next ten minutes is going to be me being <laughs> skeptical <laughs> about. But um, uh, if you listen to today's show, uh, uh, Microsoft had their event yesterday. Right. Of course, the metaverse was a big part of it. So everybody. Metaverse, it, it, it's, it's like uh, if you remember that Simpsons episode about the monorail, 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 it's metaverse, metaverse, metaverse. <laughs> um, uh, my problem right now is that it has become so, hello fellow kids, it's, it's become so boomery to talk about the metaverse because all of these giant corporations have jumped in and claimed that they're we're we're a metaverse first company. I mean, name any sort of cringy sort of, you know, going back the last twenty years of of any sort of media where it's like, you know, if if it's Silicon Valley, if it's uh, you know a, a Thirty Rock sketch or something, it's like, oh, we're a metaverse first company. Like, come on, this is at at this point. Even if you were bullish on the metaverse, you want everybody to shut up. <laughs> Because it's so cringy right now. It's like saying like um, mobile first. Yes. Now, okay. And you, you and I have talked about this offline. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I've said this a thousand times. Mm-hmm. Everything is a buzzword that people want to invest in, that companies say to their uh, stockholders that they're a X first company mm. until it becomes the thing that actually turns. Like, until it again, becomes like a liability. No, no, until it becomes a reality. Oh, right? oh, oh. So, okay, same, same. So, I mean, what I'm saying right, is, right. like, if someone pitched you and they said that they're mobile first, now it's a liability because you're like, wait, you're not? Like, it's, it's right. obvious. You should already be there. And, and in the same way that, like, um, uh, video on the web was something that I heard about forever until YouTube yep. made it happen, that yep. social media was something that I heard about forever and ever until finally it was solved. And, um, so of course I get that, but it, it it it's so it's so cringy right now. It was already cringy, Archie. Stop, stop that. Um, it was so cringy already in terms of like this is the next thing that everybody wants to invest in. This is what all the VCs are. Why is it cringy uh, you know, to, you, to you? Like in the sense that it's just overplayed. It's talked about too much. It it's too high level, abstract. It's oversold. All of the above, and mm-hmm. no one actually knows what it is. And okay, so this is hmm. this is putting on the history hat, yep. which again, uh, I hope I don't go too long on this, but it is it it is like the information superhighway. Uh, you know, I researched this a lot for my book. Mm-hmm. You know, Microsoft and the um, the cable companies, and you know, Time Warner, and all sorts of people back in the early nineties. Everyone knew that um, digital was going to be a thing, that the internet in some form was going to be a thing, but no one actually knew what it was going to be. But they all used the buzzwords and they all said that they got it. And it's, 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 literally, like, it's, it's, it's literally like out of an episode of Succession. You know? um, and, and so right now, the problem with it is, is number one, no one knows what it is, but they're using the buzzword. And then the fact that all of the incumbents it reminds me of when, you know, uh, Time Warner and Microsoft and and uh, 
you know, Rogers and everyone were, were going to give you the information superhighway, except for the fact that because they were incumbents, because they didn't know, they, they all had their incumbency sort of biases. So they thought it was going to come via the TV. They thought it was going to be, it was going to come in the early 2000s when broadband came and things like that. Meanwhile, if, if the metaverse actually happens, it's not going to, it's not going to be stupid fucking, um, avatars in a in an office meeting with a virtual whiteboard i i just the cringe thing to me not only is that it's these huge incumbents with their boomer energy and it's it's also that all of their demos are well guess what look we can you don't have to be in a zoom anymore you can be <laughs> in a you can put on your your vr glasses and you can be in a virtual zoom meeting with a virtual whiteboard and okay, you can let me, a, let, me a, let me pause you cuz i think i i think i'm getting it or understanding like what's going on for you so or maybe i'm wrong but maybe why it's not so cringy like for me in the same way it is for you is because of the degree to which it seems like at least in this case you know Z- <clears throat> excuse me zuck is trying too hard like those who are incumbents shouldn't be essentially trying to like take the sandbox away from like the kids if you know you're the adult you know like you kind of let the kids like have the thing and Throughout like all of Facebook's history, uh, it's always been about stealing the thing that the young kids are doing and then sort of planting the Facebook flag on it and claiming credit for it. So this feels a lot like that. And it was essentially a race to who was going to be able to claim to be the first and mostest metaverse company. And by changing the name, like Zuck gets to christen this era and I mean, in many ways, like own it in an almost like an end run around Microsoft. The dynamics between Meta and Microsoft are going to be very interesting in this because Zuck did mention in his keynote that they're working with people at Microsoft. And, you know, Zuck looks up to admires Bill Gates. And yet for all the sort of standardization or open platform aspects of what Bill Gates did with Microsoft, you know, Zuck has always wanted to do the same thing, but for the social web and to then own the social internet. So this feels like a number of different things playing out that if you step away from your initial kind of, you know, throw up in your mouth kind of uh, reaction to it and get over the fact that it's trying too hard to, to sort of force something or to will something into existence before people are ready, I think you have to interpret it from a different lens, you know, which is kind of like a direction towards the future, not aimed at the present. And I, whether, I get that. Uh-huh. I get that, but you're still using terms like force. And um, we don't use the term information superhighway. That w- that's something that is in the dustbin of history. I, I, I do think that it's too early and it is too forced. And the thing that it'll become, and, and I, I use that quote today on the show that, you know, if, if, if the metaverse happens, it'll happen on the blockchain, which I don't know that that's true. I have skepticism about crypto stuff as well. But there's a ton of energy there that is not, in the hands of the incumbents. Yeah, and but so I think that's that's exactly what Zuck wants to capture. You know, the fact yeah, that he brought no, up NFTs yeah. and talked about the blockchain and working with some of those things and the whole interop conversation about bringing skins or, you know, shoes that you buy in one part of the metaverse to another part of the metaverse um, speaks to some of those ideas and is putting those ideas in the minds of whether it's the advertisers or the brands that, mm-hmm. you know, work with Facebook slash Meta. Hmm? Yeah. 
Or developers. Oh, and, and, and developers and game designers and et cetera and so forth. So I, I don't, I guess maybe I've been drinking far too much of the Web3 NFT Kool-Aid because to me, it seems self-evident that something like the metaverse is, it, it's already here. You know, yeah, and, but if I was if I was as pilled as you are about <laughs> uh-huh. Web three, I would I would be more skeptical than even I'm being right now because huh. it it's it it just sounds so thirsty to me. <laughs> like the You're thirst is literally dripping <laughs> off of every word in that video, right? Um, you know, I don't look look listen. Uh, I, I haven't seen it because I haven't been in Manhattan, but there's the huge NFT conference going on right now yeah. in New York City. Yeah. Like uh, that wasn't Facebook didn't make that happen, and you know, I, I, look, uh, uh, okay, I am being a little too uh, grumpy right now, yeah. but I am saying that if if Mark Zuckerberg announced that there was going to be a metaverse conference in Manhattan next month, I don't think you'd have the same sort of energy. Um, I think that's a great point, but I think it, it feels similar to when Instagram, you know, took on snaps stories and essentially saw energy that was happening elsewhere and tried to neuter it at the source. Now it didn't work. It turns out that you can have a couple platforms, maybe not Twitter that have stories and that, that actually works out just fine. In this case, I, I got to imagine that Zuck was like lusting after all of the energy that's going into Web3 and NFTs and some of the values around interop. And so he's able to cherry pick the words that will resonate for that audience in a certain way, while absolutely still be 100% focused on you know owning or having a great deal of influence over that space. So I, I, it just, it feels like it's different. It feels like he doesn't have the ownership that, I don't know, maybe renaming the company implies, but it does suggest a very clear direction that he's pointing the sort of Facebook bazooka at, um, and firing a meta missile towards, and that's, that's where the whole company is going. Okay. So we, we've gone down this path. I think we can be this horse like a lot more, yeah. especially if it's a virtual metaverse horse. But we we have some very important guests here that are going to talk about a different part of, and not just specifically Zuck's presentation about the metaverse, but about what's going on in the creator economy in general. One because... of the things that Zuck spent a lot of time talking about in his metaverse keynote was about how creators should get paid and how they can make money. And in fact, they brought, or they had Vishal up there who was formerly uh, head of uh, some part of um, Instagram product. I think it was head of product or something um, over at Instagram talking about an influencer who's creating sort of a virtual butterfly gallery in the metaverse. I don't know. It was a little lost on me, but that, that Vishal is now head of metaverse, um, I guess, product at Instagram. So Instagram is becoming a metaverse company as well. And the whole point of this was to say to creators, again, a very broad definition of creators, and we should probably unpack that uh, concept as well, that the only way that this whole thing's going to work is if creators are getting paid and creators are making money. And so we've got two folks here today to join us to talk about that. Um, we've got Greg and we've got Simon. If you guys want to introduce yourselves um, and let us know like your interest in the space, uh, that would be great. 
We all know there are things in life that you have to compromise on, but when it comes to your health, there is no compromise. So don't go back to that one doctor who uses your appointment to catch up on the latest headlines, their family group chat, their crossword puzzles, just because they're available right now or they take your slightly sketchy insurance. Instead, check out ZocDoc, the place where you can find and book doctors who will make you feel comfortable, listen to you, and prioritize your health. And you can search by location, availability, and insurance, so literally no compromises here, because with ZocDoc, you've got more options than you know. ZocDoc is a free app and website where you can search and compare highly rated in-network doctors near you and instantly book appointments with them online. Once you find the doc you want, you can book them immediately. No more waiting awkwardly on hold with a receptionist. And these docs all have verified reviews from actual real patients. We're talking about booking appointments with tens of thousands of top-rated patient-reviewed credible doctors and specialists. I have personally used ZocDoc to find a podiatrist when I needed one for the first time ever in my life. Go to ZocDoc.com slash TechMeme and download the ZocDoc app for free. Then find and book a top-rated doctor today. That's Z-O-C-D-O-C dot com slash tech meme zocdoc.com slash tech meme uh sure happy to go first thanks chris um yeah hi everyone i'm greg i'm the i'm currently the co-founder of a company called zealous which is a live streaming monetization platform for creators but been working in creator space since uh clout Way back when, um, with a K, right? Just, with a K, who some people just threw up, and some people are like, "Oh, I remember that." <laughs> um, <laughs> and uh, yeah, I've been building tools in this uh, domain for a while, and you know, um, recognize the creator class as sort of an emerging class of uh, SMBs, and I, you know, I support entrepreneurs in all stripes, and I'm excited about helping them, you know, step into that role. Um, I'm going to go grab your uh, tweet thread actually and pin it to this uh, channel. Just so folks can sort of see, like, because you've been writing a lot and thinking a lot about this space, and obviously you have a business in the space, and I think that just some of the things that you've been pointing out have been super valuable and useful. But before we get into that, Simon, you want to you know introduce yourself? Hello, I'm Simon Owens. Um, I host a podcast called The Business of Content. Uh, it's kind of like a media industry uh, podcast, but it features everything, you know, everybody from, you know, top executives from companies like the New York Times, but then also I, you know, interview a lot of people within the creator economy, people who have bootstrapped, uh, you know, really popular newsletters on Substack, really successful accounts on Patreon, huge YouTube stars, huge podcasters. Uh, so I, I really love kind of featuring, you know, so-called creator economy, successful entrepreneurs on it. I also have my own Substack. Uh, where I also, you know, leverage my journalism skills to publish case studies on bootstrapped media businesses. And let me let me highly recommend um, Simon's uh, Substack because it's one of the ones that I, I read religiously uh, to keep on top of, especially the 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 sub, sub Substack space, but also the whole creator space in general. Um, so let let me tee this up for because again, I'm gonna. I'm gonna I'm gonna do it in a cynical way, but one of the things that Chris and I have been talking about is, as far as we can tell, what everybody in tech is going after right now is metaverse, crypto, and the creator economy, and like those are all of the theses. If you're a, a, a if you're a startup, you're trying to fit into one of those buckets. If you're a venture capitalist, you're trying to invest in companies in these buckets. Um, but also, like that's where all of the energy is. And um, one of the things that Chris and I have been kicking around about is, uh, at least thus far, 
does the creator economy uh, make money? And does it make money for uh, the creators? Does it make money for the platforms? If 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 all of the huge tech platforms have gotten to this point, they've gotten to this point because they're essentially advertising supported. <laughs> they're they're basically they're, your attention is being um, sold to advertisers, right? And so I love the idea of the creator economy because it's a different model. That's not that. It's not as stupid as that, um, but um, I don't know, Chris, if you want to bring up some of the data points that we've been thinking about, but we're starting to wonder if the early returns in the creator economy are not good or weak or something. I don't know. Yeah, I mean, I guess like at a high level, maybe one way to frame this conversation, and I think, you know, Greg's perspective and Simon's perspective, especially on different media types and different... Mm, maybe, I don't know, fan engagement or fan interactions and the monetization opportunities in those spaces would be really interesting to unpack and to consider. But it feels like, you know, just as, you know, software has been eating the world for quite a while, we're really starting to see the, you know, economy be eaten by software and that opportunities for people to, you know, essentially have fractional work, fractional labor, working for fractional bosses, which may include themselves, um, doing fractional things related to all sorts of stuff is part of what's happening. And then you have the creation of these scarcity tokens that allow you to sell your time or your experience or your artwork or things like that, that capture and store that value and then allow you to charge, you know, for it over time, you know, is interesting. And then all the payments and stuff like that, that's happening on the internet are also enabling people to barter and exchange and do peer to peer, um, I don't know, economic exchange in a way that just was like too hard even a couple of years ago. And now you have a generation that's growing up with this stuff where they take for granted the ability to send digital payments to anybody, anywhere without interchange fees and a different type of financial literacy in the space leading to a set of different assumptions about how to participate in the economy and how to earn money and how to, I don't know, just do stuff. So maybe that doesn't make a whole lot of sense, but uh, it feels like there's just a... The way in which we conceived of work in the industrial revolution no longer seems to apply. And we're in the middle of figuring out what it will look like going forward. And some of it maybe these, I don't know, having a sub stack on the side, having a or doing a live stream. Um, and some of it maybe is, you know, working for Uber, Lyft, or whatever else. Um, I don't know, but maybe you guys can like give us a sense for what the work of a creator kind of looks like today and whether there will be, as Lee Jin sort of demands, a middle class, and if that even makes sense economically. Hmm. Yeah, and I think you're. I think you're right, Chris. Though that economics is sort of the driving, like sort of forcing function, right? Or shifts in economics, right? And so, you know, from my point of view, I think like what we see is diversification away from, you know, sort of like one stagnant stagnant model, right? And so, yes, advertising, I think, and brand and specifically like brand related um, dollars. But you know, like much like even with the Substack universe, it's moving away from employment. Uh, in one case, but I do think like we are seeing creators fan out to diversify their income. The, the idea or concept of multi-skew creators has actually been around for quite some time, but it tended to be an opportunity afforded only to sort of like the largest creators 
who were able to put together resources and teams that could actually let them take advantage of sort of all of these bits and pieces. Let me let me actually ask, ask you quickly to unpack that. When you say multi-skew creator, this is like Hunter Walk's conception of someone who has a lot of different ways of making money. Mm-hmm. My question would be, given your experience with live streamers or folks who, who are multi-skew creators, are they solo acts? Do they have teams? Like, I feel like we, or at least I imagine creators to be largely solopreneurs, but the larger creators, the one that, that are making you know millions of dollars tend to have teams. They tend to be basically like old school media brands who happen to yeah. use social media effectively. And so I think at least when I think about the creator, I think about people who are self-trained and sort of figuring this stuff out for themselves. They're kind of isolated on their own. There are of course, like launch houses and stuff like that, that's going on mm-hmm. to aggregate some of those folks. But I, I guess I'm trying to understand I think that's absolutely right. And I I think they were to template probably, right? Like, you know, you could argue that um, like the four to four billion dollars raised, you know, for creator economy companies, the bulk of them are still chasing the same 200,000 people, right? Yeah. Like the 200,000 creators. Yes. uh, One 200,000 creators, kind of the 1% at the top, which decreasingly look like individuals and increasingly look like media companies, right? So. Those multi skews are anything from from partnerships and ambassador deals all the way down to like programming and educational content and all kinds of things in between. What I do think is there's an emergent trend where um, there are technologies and platforms arising that are saying, "Hey, all of these skews that existed, we could refactor them into bite-sized versions that give everybody access to them, but not necessarily at the same economic scale." But but that economic scale is still significantly greater because we're removing sort of the constraints of the previous systems, right? So the taxes and the burdens that came with being on a platform, et cetera, like are, we can askew them to some degree, right? And so we're now looking at new monetization and revenue opportunities coming out of community, crypto, um, uh, CRM, like all these other spaces and, 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 and sort of approaches that the larger uh, creators were always taking advantage of, but no one wanted to build tools to service, you know, someone with a thousand, two thousand, five thousand, because traditionally, as you know, I think you guys have both pointed out, you're still largely dealing with an average, like 70, 80 percent of the revenue. I think is still actually let's put it this way: I think there's like ten billion dollars in creator income uh, or revenue generated, but there's like fifteen fifteen billion dollars in. Um, influencer marketing revenue generated like in, in the same year right so that that's a pretty quick catch-up relatively speaking um but you know but that's sort of the disparity still right and what we are seeing i think now is not you know chris you and i like we've been on this uh twitter forever right like, <laughs> yes you, you know in the early days like early adopters got large followings right we saw that happen on clubhouse we saw it happen all these other places right yeah. um but the reality was that in the past you had to be big to do this like near full time, right? I don't think that that's the same reality that most people are walking out and into this field with the expectation of, right? Like I think folks are saying, "Hey, I can tra- I could actually start to make money on day one, or I can make money like you know within three months of starting, right?" And I think the big fundamental mental shift that is happening for the create on the creator side, not the builder side or anything else, is you really have two transitions. One is to sort of customer bases as opposed to just audiences and followers and the second is to communities which is is that in lieu of audiences and followers right and now those are big leaps because like as solopreneurs everyone here knows like just maintaining a twitter account is a huge pain in the ass yeah right like it's a whole other thing to have an engaged community and it's a whole entirely different thing to have a customer base that you support 
and folks are still learning how to deal with those pieces. And and Simon, you you wrote recently literally about this. Um, I'm I, I'm not going to quote your whole piece, but at the end of your recent piece, you said that if there are 22,000 YouTube channels right now with at least a million subscribers, if each of those channels employs an average of five people, which you go into in your piece why that could be plausible, that's 110,000 jobs. Um, so even, even if we're only talking about the top 1%, you're still saying there, there's, a, there's a whole economy here with, with real people making real money. Yeah, and so I think that's why, like, you you see a lot of these stories about how there's no creator economy, middle class, because they have these statistics that show X amount of money is going towards the top 1% of uh, creators. But yeah, that's something, you know, as Greg was pointing out, like a lot of these uh, cr- these creator businesses are actually employing sometimes dozens of people. Like if you look at, you, you know, the operations of Mr. Beast, he owns multiple warehouses. He has camera people. He has full-time editors. Uh, he has people who are building his sets for him. Like he has you know, a, a huge business employing dozens, if not hundreds of people. And so you, you, I think YouTube recently put out a uh, study in which it, it claims that uh, just in the U.S. alone, it is contributing to the full-time jobs of 400,000 different people. So I think that's one one way that those those statistics some kind of get misconstrued a little bit. Another way that they get misconstrued is that when you're looking at that 99% of people who aren't making a lot of money, a lot of those people who are, ju- are just starting out on platforms like YouTube or Substack, maybe they've only produced like four or five videos before getting bored, their heart's not really in, in it, uh, you know, or they just haven't put in the work yet and, and they still plan to. And so because the barrier is so um, is so low to enter the creator space, you're going to have this like this huge number that isn't really representative representative of like the people who are actually working uh, on on their YouTube channel or their Substack, forty hours a week, and so one thing that I've proposed is trying to do studies that only hone in on people who have created at least one hundred pieces of long form content, and uh, in order to weed out all those people who are just starting out or who are just not that serious about it, and I think that you'll find that you know it uh, still a lot of the money is going to the very top but it's a little bit better distributed in that sense yes but one way to think of it is and i and i hear you because a, a, a lot of us uh, uh, talking right now have done this where it's like you you just do the work and it's like a snowball rolling downhill and eventually you have a business or whatever but at the same time when you when you talk about someone that does five substacks or five podcasts and then gets bored of it one of the one of the issues would be and when we're talking about a middle class it's also like if you start and you you're only making pennies like it's still a one percent issue if you can't get the traction if if you if you put in all the work for a year and you're still and you've only made a hundred bucks do you know what I mean? Like, so is is one of the issues that the economy is not there for not a middle class, but for someone to start and like, oh, look, I you know I didn't pay my rent 
this first month of doing a Substack or a podcast, but you know, I, I, I made a hundred bucks this month. That's, that's nothing to sneeze at. Like is, is the economy still sort of skewed in the way that it's hard to start out to get that traction going? I mean, I don't think it necessarily should be. Thinking about think about being like a lawyer. Like you don't get to make you know a hundred dollars a month in your first year of law school. Like you really have to go through you know all three years of law school before you make your first dollar. Same thing if you're going to be a doctor or anything like that. I think there needs to be somewhat of a barrier of entry to the first dollar, uh, and that and it really is about putting in the time and and having that upfront sweat equity, that upfront investment of your time before you make that first dollar and i don't think we're ever going to live in a world where you're like just starting out and you're suddenly making like you know two hundred dollars a month a month or two in no matter what kind of tools you uh build to make things more equitable yeah i I would probably say that the the place where i disagree with lee the most is probably just fundamentally in the framing of what creators are i think simon hit on it a lot closer to how i feel about it i view um every creator as an entrepreneur and I believe if you look at it from that point of view, no business has the right to survive. They earn the right to survive, right? Um, and so the, the notion of a middle class is to some degree stating somehow that an external force should be guaranteeing everyone's success. But there's a finite amount of attention that we can actually sell. And so like, I actually look at the, the platforms and all the parts of the ecosystem today that we kind of like, you know, want to crap on most of the time. You know, I look at them all as lead gen or sort of as part of the process of building a business. And so I think like once you stop framing it from a, hey, why is someone doing that to me versus how am I going to get from A to B? I think the economic opportunity is there, right? Like you can make money as a consulting expert, passion economy. Like, you know, I one of the, the, the links I have down there lists like four different economic models. There's four different kinds of ways to make money as a quote unquote creator, and you can use all of them. It just depends on which ones you're willing to employ and deploy on time, right? And so I think like if we stop thinking about it as just this sort of thing that's supposed to happen and understand it from an entrepreneurship point of view, then it's something you make happen through will and effort. And I think as Simon said, there's a there's a steep curve usually to success, but some businesses also just take off randomly for no apparent reason. You know, uh, there were pet rocks. No, I don't know why. Right. But people got them. Right. Um, And then there were also real businesses that were a slog and took 10 years to get the profitability. That's a reality. I think that every entrepreneur is always faced. And I know every time I started a company, no one said you deserve a paycheck. No one's ever said that to me once. I think this raises like some very interesting questions about um, maybe like the time uh, that we're in. Uh, in terms of both technology and migrating from different massive media sort of consolidated entities that worked over consolidated media empires, mostly radio and television, to the disaggregation of the internet and giving everybody essentially a voice and then allowing a bunch of voices that previously were sort of undisclosed or were, you know, unable to reach, um, you know, their intended audience, I suppose, to actually get some exposure, and then through that exposure and repetition, build up people who cared about what they were saying, and then to find a way now we're in the era of being able to compensate those folks. I think the things that you guys are bringing up is very interesting because the word or the concept of a creator, I think, does belie all the energy and effort and work that goes into becoming 
entrepreneurial to building a business, to knowing how to charge for things, to know what your worth is, and to operate in, in a space that has largely been able to, you know, one, exploit your kind of capital and your contributions for years. I mean, you know, Greg and I have been on this, this hellscape of Twitter, you know, since 2006 or something and 2005, 2006. And, you know, I, 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 I hate to go check this now, but um, I, where are my tweets? Um, I don't even know where the count is anymore. I feel like I'm over a hundred thousand. I've got a lot of tweets. I've said a lot of things on Twitter. Twitter has basically like paid me bumpkiss. You know, they've had this whole effort to, uh, provide a way to, I guess, get creators paid on the platform this year. And, you know, the last time there was an article about it, they've spent, or they put out like $6,000 or whatever to all of their creators, which is just patently insane. You know, I'm wait, wait, not... wait. Un- un- underline that $6,000 in total to everybody that's signed up for to, to, to become monetized. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. 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 So it's, it's, it's a very small amount. Maybe that amount has increased since then. My point is the amount of money that Twitter makes from ads versus the amount of money that they're then deploying to those of us who produce content on the platform is completely uh, ratioed to put it one way. And it seems like there's nothing innate about the metaverse or about these coming platforms that will necessarily change the way in which we exchange value in those environments. So, you know, I think one of the things that that actually prompted Brian and I to have this conversation was noticing that there are some folks who are migrating off of Substack. You know, there was obviously like a clamor about it maybe a year ago when everyone was excited and they were going to make six or seven figures writing an email newsletter. And then there was like this flurry of people you know, doing what we did on Clubhouse 2, talking about the platform, talking about Substack, saying, oh, I'm going to make a million dollars on Substack. And then like three people did, and it brought a bunch of people over there. People migrated their fan base and their readers. And it turned out that a total of like three people have made like a million dollars or more on Substack. It's just like Twitch. It's just like all these other platforms that end up with a power law distribution where most of the revenue goes to a very, very small number of creators. And it never, I mean, one, it doesn't really trickle down because what is the mechanism by which a creator who is super successful then trickles down their income to other creators on the platform, except of course, if they hire them Um, and the platform itself, like one of the things that, uh, you know, I've sort of glibly brought up is the idea of a universal creator income, because frankly, it, it doesn't seem like those who are in those early innings, whether they're producing their 50th Substack newsletter or their 75th, you know, YouTube video are really making meaningful money that allows them to go and, you know, become, well, maybe not even a full-time creator, but like a part-time creator, you know, a hundred bucks a month is nice, Simon, please, but it doesn't help. Please go on this, especially on the Substack thing, especially with like the Charlie Wurzel thing. <laughs> yes, exactly. If you want to like yeah. tell that story a little bit, that would be helpful too. Yeah. Uh, I mean, uh, you know, well, let me just respond to the one part you said about, you know, the, it going towards the top and how it's just like really harsh economics, you know, for these, these Substack writers. And I'm not going to deny that I'm running my own Substack. I know how harsh the economics are. And that's why I'm seeing is kind of like the creator economy 2.0 is it's, it's acting more like, you know, almost like Silicon Valley startups. Like, you know, one of the famous things about Y Combinator is they encourage you to go and find a co-founder or multiple co-founders so that you can take on more of the burden, so you can take on multiple roles. And I see more and more of these new 
companies that are launching it both on Substack and off Substack are lots of writers who are teaming up so that they can basically scale more quickly. They can share, they can cross pollinate their audiences, things like that. So these writer collectives, like every like every dot like two, def- yep, yeah, like every dots like uh, Defector, like the Discourse blog, like Brickhouse. I could probably name like like three or four more off the top of my head. And what's great about that is you know, it, and this is the hardest thing about being a Substack writer is just content production like yep. creating enough free content to get people on the top of your funnel but then also creating enough paid content to lure those people at the top of your funnel into actually converting into subscribing it's just so freaking hard and by having other writers join up in these writer collectives um you, you know uh that's uh that makes it that lessens the burden on everyone and you can actually see some economies of scale as a result of that um okay i'm, I'm happy to talk about charlie Warzel, but i'll pause right there unless anybody wants to respond uh, can i just add one thing about the thing that i think gets glossed over the most though um is well just call the sort of uh total cost of ownership for owning your own platform and i feel like we take for granted, you know, like when you work for a newspaper, or you work for a place that has like a publishing side of the house and an editorial side, there's someone selling, right? Like there's someone doing all of these other activities. Yeah, totally. Right? This is the problem with like libertarian idealism where it's like, oh, I do need roads and oh, I do need like common <laughs> infrastructure. Oh, I actually don't really want to do that stuff. Huh? I should invent a government that'll take care of those things. And oh, how do we pay for it? Oh, we should have taxes. Oh. And the cycle repeats about this. uh, If you remember that one, Um, but that's the point, right? It's just that I think like what a lot of creators who rushed out, and I think because they were oversold the promise that you can just do these things on your own. Oh, it's time you can be your own person. Well, it turns out that being your own person the way you were somewhere else, unless you're willing to take a massive pay cut and readjust your life, means having all those other supporting functions and services still providing the structure and the infrastructure that helps you, that was helping you be successful there. And I think like for us to have an honest conversation about how to move forward. And that's why I think what Simon's pointing out is happening is you see people coming together because it gives them, you know, a place to rally together to sort of like fight together to win. Right. And that gives them a way to pool resources and sort of, you know, all these other, even if it's not DAOs and things like that, just even cooperating together gives us and unlocks more potential for us because strength in numbers. What was, um, by the way, Simon, I want you to tell the, the um, Charlie story in a sec, but is one of the reasons why this has happened is because there was an assumption that software would do more of that sort of supporting work and, and that that was the thing that was going to change it that allows individuals to become creators and then become their own solopreneurs and run it all themselves. And it turns out that like that overhead is, you know, if not 30%, way more than 30% of where your mental space goes. I mean, I know that like running my yeah. own business over the last year, I was having to do all this stuff that took away so much of my time that I would have spent doing just creator oriented stuff. Um, and I was willing to do it, I suppose at the time, but for people that don't have any exposure to this stuff or haven't done it before, that's a huge learning process that I don't know. It just feels like it just weighs on you over time. Yeah, and people complain about the 10% cut that Substack gives, but I've talked to creators who have switched over to Substack from from running their own kind of like tech stack, and they say it's more than worth the actual price. It it takes off so much much of that burden. You know, I interviewed uh, Richard Rushfield, who runs a really popular and successful uh, Substack called The Ankler. It's like a Hollywood industry Substack. And for the first like two years before he joined Substack, he was, you know, cobbling together like, 
like WordPress, MailChimp, Stripe. And he said that he was wasting, you know, 30% of his time just doing basic customer service stuff and, and technical troubleshooting and stuff like that. And he said at the moment that, um, you know, he switched over to Substack, the, all that went away. And now he's able to spend almost 100% of his time on writing. So people really underestimate I, I, you know, Substack gets a lot, gets clobbered a lot, and people are cynical about it. I think because there was all this hype, but it really was a new product that did something really new that no other product was doing to the full extent that it did. You can be, it was the first product where you could have a newsletter that accepts payments up and running within a few minutes. You know, Tiny Letter had the chance to build that, but Mailchimp um, messed it up by never implementing that for Tiny Letter. Review started to do that, but then once Substack pulled ahead, it uh, became a paid product and it only switched to free after the Twitter acquisition. And really for, for a long time, Substack was the only platform, at least the major platform that I knew of that was really offering that. Uh, Simon, let me let me tee up the Charlie Wurzel thing, um, and and I'll 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 give a little bit of background. Um, former BuzzFeed writer went solo on Substack, is now going, I guess, back to the Republic or something. He's going to do a newsletter for the Republic, the Atlantic, so, Atlantic, Atlantic, um, shutting down his his Substack to do that. Um, one of the things in his essay, if if Chris wants to put it in in the in the top yeah, here, I'll pull it up. Um, one of the things that struck me about it is his take on why his Substack didn't get the traction that he wanted. And by the way, he was he he admits that he was approaching six figures a year in in income, or 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 sur- was going to surpass it if he had stuck with it. But one of the things that he said was um, he felt like to be a successful Substack. You had to be a certain type of writer doing a certain type of thing. Be it now on one on the one hand, he said it was, um, you know, if you if you were sort of um, an industry newsletter where you know it could be expensed by your employer, or you were in a very narrow niche where it was very obvious the the, the value you were providing that's easy. Versus what he was trying to do was more generalist, didn't work. Or if you wanted to be someone that picked Twitter fights with people, that seemed to be the, the big substacker. Sub stackers were successful at that. Now, the, I, I'm, we're talking about substack, but it made me think of all of these things like the people on YouTube that are hugely successful do a certain type of thing. Like there's people that do like these sort of stunt things. The people that are successful on Twitch do a certain type of thing. It's almost like each of these creator platforms, the people that are the 1%, there's a model to follow that gets you to that 1%. And it's almost like you kind of have to pick your platform and then, and then fit yourself into that sort of glove. That well, it's works. like products, content fit, or maybe content market fit, right? Yeah. Something like that. Well, and I think, oh, sorry, sorry, Simon, I didn't mean to cut you off. Um, I was just going to say, I think that that speaks to kind of what I was saying before is that I don't know that doing what's popular matters as much, especially as we continue to move forward. Because I, I, you know, I often use the example of AI, right? That someday AI is going to wipe out like half the jobs, right? We will end up with something that looks like, you know, a universal basic income. And the only thing left behind for people is going to be entertainment and education. And if you prefer a dork, to teach you science or you prefer someone with a dry sense of humor to teach you math, 
you're going to be able to find whatever permutation and combinations of people to entertain um, you in the metaverse. <laughs> that is to some degree the metaverse, yes, right? Um, and, but the reality is that, that that is where the opportunity is. And so I think like more people will be enabled to be who they want to be and will f- have – we're getting to the place where you can find the audience to put together another enough income to you know at least do it on the side until you get to displacement value. But that's not a trend that's that different than like every other founder – who moonlights to the point that they can actually do their business full time. Okay, but but there's a calculation here that feels a little bit different. And I do think that like Galaxy Brain, which I just pinned the tweet, um, and Charlie moving from Substack to the Atlantic, you know, represents something that's a little bit different, right? You sort of have an established, you know, writer or creator who's kind of looking out over the field and being like, you know, I can't really be exceptional in the scale that Substack offers. Whereas if I go to the Atlantic, they take care of all the bullshit that I don't want to deal with. And I get just to like work on my craft and write the things that I really want to write without having to write the salesy stuff that Substack needs in order to grow my, you know, 15 or 1600 members up to whatever, you know, Casey Newton has or something to make this like really meaningful. Like that makes some sense, but that's someone who's already established. What you're talking yeah. about, Greg, I think is a little bit different and is also a very important part of this conversation, which is, one, the set of expectations that people have about what the economy should do and how they should be served by the way that the economy is set up. I think also what I've been hearing a lot about is that we're in this really weird post-pandemic phase where pretty soon a lot of the surplus money that people have you know, either saved or acquired through government stimulus and through just everything slowing down and people not spending money on travel and stuff like that is going to start to uh, deplete and people are going to have to make decisions about what they want to do. But right now we're in this moment, which they're calling the, the great reconsideration, I suppose, where to your point, people are starting to think, you know, do I really want this like lame ass job with this lame ass boss doing this like lame ass shit that like, I don't really want to do because I could like die. There could be like five more pandemics in the next 10 years. And is this really what, how I want to spend my time? Which then leads us into the question of the creator economy and the creator middle class, if it's ever going to exist. And so do a lot of the folks that have that thought and have been doing and going through the great reconsideration actually have a shot at making a livable wage or income through pursuing their passions on the internet? In other words, is there enough valuable attention left over to put money in their pockets to sustain themselves. And, you know, I mean, Greg, I think this is what your business is predicated upon, I, I think, unless you're selling picks and shovels to the folks that are rushing after that, what might turn out to be like a, a copper, well, a copper mine at this point would be pretty valuable. But, you know, co- like, I don't know, it's like a, a plastic heap or something, <laughs> like something that turns out to be far less valuable than we think it is right now. Oh, yeah, I, I think it's interesting. Like, I, and by the way, I think I just, with the larger format, like, the, you know, with, um, the Substack, uh, you know, um, ex- exiles, right? I, I think yeah. they were like sort of well-known folks in a different domain, likely had a different, you know, had a, a more like rigid take on journalism, right? Like, which I, which I appreciate and value. And I think like they have having the opportunity to do that more, like certainly makes sense to me. Right. Um, I think like, you know, we've seen the, this sort of de-escalation or shrinking down from the thousand true fans to a hundred true fans, um, um, you know, down to even smaller amounts. Um, you know, I think that that's possible. And I do think, you know, if you can get now, here's, here's the part that I think is hard, Chris, right? Is to get a dollar from someone is a whole different beast of work than to just make something for free and then let advertisers eventually support it. Right. Yeah, and that's yeah. that transition to being customer oriented that 
most creators honestly don't sort of embrace per se, right? Like uh, you'll see lots of large, as creators often get larger just due to the fact that they're by themselves. They don't respond to their comments anymore. They don't even look at the comments anymore because it sometimes becomes toxic. toxic. Um, and so I, I do think it's possible, but you have to work it, right? Like, and, and that work doesn't necessarily mean selling out, but it does mean working harder to win dollars and, and, and create value for their customers, which is your audience. And, and I think like unless, unless we unhook sort of that mentality faster for creators, there won't be a middle class because everyone will just be expecting everything to be spoon-fed to them. And Chris, I, I think it's never going to be, we're never going to be in a situation where someone quits their job and then it's like walking into like a Walmart or Target and filling out a job application and then they take you and interview you and then suddenly you're a full-time creator in the sense of like having your own business. I think a lot of people will like come into it sideways. Like there's a really famous, I, uh, you know, I'm forgetting his name, but this is a really famous Twitch streamer now. And how he kind of broke in is basically he was a college student and he applied to be an editor for Mr. Beast. And he became kind of like, you know, probably making, you know, thirty, forty thousand dollars $40,000, you know, editing videos for Mr. Beast. And then the opportunity arose for him to actually appear as a contestant in a Mr. Beast video. And then he was able to be savvy about his appearance in that so that the fans would root for him. And then he started appearing in more Mr. Beast videos. And then he eventually kind of spun off. Uh, and started his own uh, channel, and now he's one of the most popular users on Twitch. And I think as the creator economy matures, we're going to see more and more like that, like people acting basically as apprentices who are getting paid by larger, more mature creators who have you know seven-figure businesses until they can build up their own brands basically and then they can split off but i don't think we're ever going to have that thing where someone you know to, to your point quits their wall street job and then suddenly a few days later they're a full-time tiktok creator yeah so i i mean I, I i agree and i hear you i think what i'm struggling with is the to some degree propaganda from the social media platforms and the solicitation of the creator class to come and build and design and produce product for them that the, they can basically sell ads against. So I just pinned a tweet um, from something that Facebook launched today, Facebook for creators, soon to be, if not already, meta for creators, um, where they're talking about these bonuses. Now, I, uh, the language bonus must be some legalistic thing that you can just sort of like give out and it's not employment. You know, I mean, Uber got um, all sorts of criticism and critique for not actually hiring people, but I can't see how Meta and Instagram are not doing the same thing with these bonuses. But regardless, essentially, they're providing you with an incentive. And I think this is very important for us to identify and look at these incentives and how long these incentives will last and whether or not the funnel that these platforms are putting creators through ultimately is a net benefit for the creators, for their creator economy, for the platforms themselves, and for what is going on in these spaces where they're becoming much more commercial and much more transactional. So for example, uh, I ended up doing a series of um, Instagram lives because they offered these bonus payments up to, I think, a thousand bucks or something if I did four um, Instagram lives over the course of a month or something. And I was like, you know, I don't really want to do a live, but I'll try it. You know, I was still in the exploratory phase of, you know, the creator economy. I did them and I published them and I made, you know, 500 bucks or something because of technicalities. And then I never did another one. So 
I do think that it's interesting how these platforms are trying to motivate and incentivize people to create content in a way that they haven't done it before, especially video content, which is more monetizable. And Greg, of course, this is like your space. But, you know, when I see these um, earned or, or estimate earning charts, which is, you know, Facebook put out there where they're saying you will earn a thousand dollars in, in this case, six days, like that creates a set of expectations that seems way off base. That's just not realistic, at least, you know, until these bonuses expire, Uber did the same thing with drivers. So uh, maybe you guys can like think out into the future and what the, these platforms are putting in people's minds in terms of the expectations of how this is going to go and how sustainable it is. Let's be real for a minute. Most guys would wear a t-shirt every day of their lives if they could. The problem is that most t-shirts are not acceptable to wear at work or out on a hot date night. But today's sponsor, Cuts, has finally changed that. Cuts t-shirts are such high-quality, wrinkle-free, and so buttery soft that you can look like you're dressing up even when you're dressing down. Yeah, you heard that. Wrinkle-free. You never have to substitute comfort for fashion ever again. If you see me in a t-shirt, it's likely one from Cuts. I'm also a huge fan of their AO5 pocket pants, the right sort of step up from jeans without going all the way into dress pants, like literally my ideal Venn diagram of professional looking but comfortable feeling. When you touch something from Cuts, you can immediately feel the quality. Their proprietary fabric blends are ridiculously soft and breathable, they don't wrinkle, and they look way more expensive than they actually are. For a limited time, our listeners get 20% off your entire order when you use code RIDE at checkout. That's 20% off your order at CutsClothing.com with promo code RIDE. Please support our show and tell them we sent you. Experience the perfect blend of style and comfort with Cuts Clothing. CutsClothing.com, promo code RIDE for 20% off. When you go through airport security, there's one line where the TSA agent checks your ID and another line where a machine scans your bag. The same thing happens in enterprise security, but instead of passengers and luggage, it's end users and their devices. These days, most companies are pretty good at the first part of the equation where they check user identity, but user devices can roll right through authentication without getting inspected at all. In fact, 47% of companies allow unmanaged, untrusted devices to access their data. That means an employee can log in from a laptop that has its firewall turned off and hasn't been updated in six months. Or worse, that laptop might belong to a bad actor using employee credentials. Collide finally solves the device trust problem. Collide ensures that no device can log into your Okta-protected apps unless it passes your security checks. Plus, you can use Collide on devices without MDM, like your Linux fleet, contractor devices, and every BYOD phone and laptop in your company. Visit collide.com slash ride to watch a demo and see how it all works. That's K-O-L-I-D-E dot com slash ride, collide.com slash ride. Uh, Simon, go ahead. I, I have thoughts here, but... Uh, well, I mean, I think, I think you're identifying like t- two different ways these major platforms are going in terms of... Um, of basically trying to lure creators on the one side, you have platforms like YouTube and Substack, which are trying to help creators build actual sustainable revenue with repeatable, um, with the repeatable, just one second. Sorry. My wife was in the kitchen. Uh, sorry. With repeatable revenue, um, like YouTube and Substack, 
Um, but then on the other end, you have, you know, like Instagram and TikTok and Snapchat, which are luring these, you know, these are trying to launch these huge creator funds of, you know, a billion dollars or, right. or whatever. Yep. And, um, sorry, I lost my, my complete train of thought. Um, and I, that latter group of, of, of platforms, like it's good that they're putting money out there for creators to, for creators to be able to make money. But, um, I'm sorry, go Greg. I, I completely lost my, my train of thought. <laughs> no I, I think I know where you're going to, um, and, and I would say, Chris, I think the better frame to think about these platforms and these actions is not because they care about creators. It's just defense yes. against um, like all of these people leaving their platforms. Yeah, uh, exactly. If folks do leave in mass, they actually will start to be able to demonstrate to other people that you could leave um, in a more meaningful mm. way. And those people will form alliances. And, and, and So you're saying that they're paying people to stay, not to become creators? Absolutely. And so the reason also, why you stay is because you could possibly make money. Yeah, I, I I was going to make a similar point in the sense that uh, again, if I'm going to be skeptical, Brian here, um, to what degree are these platforms doing this because they want to do an end run around the status quo? In Zuckerberg's video and all of the talk about the metaverse, he's talking about you know how unfair the status quo is because you have to pay Apple and Google the thirty percent vig and things like that. Um, you know, he's saying that this is unfair to creators, but also it's unfair to him because he's not getting his thirty percent vig. You know, so I, one of one of my skepticisms about the creator economy is number one: does it scale enough that enough people can make a living from it. But number two, is it just something that a lot of platforms are doing because they want to take the chessboard and throw it in the air and have all the pieces fall down and, and have something new happen where maybe they will get a better piece of the pie versus the piece of the pie versus the pie right now where there are only certain people that are taking uh, mm -hmm. a take mm -hmm. of all of the creation that's happening right now. Consider this example. Instagram didn't pay creators one penny until like this year, right? Yep, yep. So when, when Zuckerberg wants to talk about what's unfair, right? Like there's like more than a decade of them not giving one crap about, you know, uh, creators, right? That Facebook was the same way, right? Like all of the monetization went to them. Look at it this way. And this goes back to the broader argument I was making earlier, which is that one of the reasons why we won't have a middle class, and I believe this is fundamentally what, what everyone needs to be working on is moving the data back to the edges so that it's all concentrated in one place. And so if you're a creator and you go live or you do your host date on uh, Instagram, whatever platform, they're going to give you back three data points, age, sex, location. That's about it, right? Yet, if you want to go buy an advertisement on any of those platforms to reach my own audience, they have 40, 50, 500 different attributes that I can target on. The ad dollars will follow the attributes, right? And they will follow con connectivity to the audience itself. And so the second we move that data to back to the edges, the creators will actually own that, and that repatriates $50 billion a year in advertising dollars that can actually go straight to creators with minimal interaction, right? Um, and it doesn't take very much. Like, uh, you know, this is what I've been working on. This is actually what our live streaming platform is meant to do, is actually to gather data, not uh, to help you build an understanding of your audience. But the reality is that you only need five or six questions to make a much more higher fidelity match to potential uh, brands that you like and that can offer something meaningful to your audience.
Yeah, I think that's the data thing. So, so one of the things that, that occurs to me, I have, I have two thoughts, um, and then I'm going to bring uh, Bernardo up. You know, one is this question about knowing your audience sort of happens when you achieve a scale where kind of intimacy is lost. And in order to succeed in the creator economy, in some ways you have to sacrifice that intimacy because of all the different touch points and relationships that you need to have in order to distill, you know, some sort of economic reward. In other words, if I have, you know, those thousand true fans and uh, let's say 150 or even like 50 of them are willing to pay for a monthly subscription, I might be able to make just enough money to sort of like get by. So you have to be building for a larger number of relationships than normal, far beyond uh, Dunbar's number, in order to make the economics actually work out, given the rate that people are typical to pay. The other thing that I was going to say, I guess, maybe an answer to my previous commentary was about the concept of participatory economics, or I, I should say participatory capitalism. Now, that may seem redundant, but it seems that a lot of the grievances that people have about you know, the economy is that, one, the economy doesn't work for them, and that capitalism is very exclusionary um, and creates a lot of like, you know, winners and losers. And so what you know, seems to be the case is that people want to not just kind of be present in social media and consuming it, but they want to be making it and they want to feel like they have a stake in it. And by giving people rewards, financial rewards, even if those rewards are more or less a pittance, it does, I think, Greg, to your point, create a kind of stickiness where you don't really want to leave because you're getting some benefit. And maybe that benefit is enough of a signal you know, to you or to your peers that there's some money to, to be made here. And if you just keep going, you'll eventually get to you know, Mr. Beast status or something. And that hope is enough to keep someone on the platform and unwilling to try something new um, because their economic you know, uh, livelihood is, is caught up in that. Anyways, so Bernardo... Um, Coming up, I guess, Bernie, maybe you prefer. Um, what would you like to contribute? So, hey, Chris, first of all, thank you for having this space. And hi, everyone, Brian, Greg, and Simon. Um, I was here listening you, and I was thinking to myself that first, Chris, most of what you are telling about the financial upside um, of the creative economy so we can have a middle class as Jean Lin has, has written about. I think that most of all, you are, speak you are speaking almost as if it was a DAO, you know? So what I think is wrong about the creative economy right now is that most people are thinking through analogy because most of them, we are still, we are still thinking that the biggest platforms will drive distribution and the future for the for the creative economy hmm. i don't think it will come from there okay so right now as i see this is like this so we are in the 60s 70s 80s where you have the birth of the personal computer and you have both IBM and HP who had, they could buy both Apple and other companies, but, but they didn't see the, the personal computer as a, a thing, you know. And back then, something that you have a ton or a ton of articles written about that there won't ever be a market for personal computers and look to where we are today. So what I really think about the creative economy is that first, distribution is wrong. So I, I think the biggest players, so the Facebooks of the, this world and YouTubes of this world, eventually they will start to fall 
on the creator side because I believe that the biggest creators they will be able to manage their their fans, their followers outside of the platform. This is my first guess. And the other thing that I think is that most people are looking for the high achievers, so the 1% of the creator economy, as the norm. But they are not the norm. They are completely an outlier, you know. So if we think on the average salary of an American, we are talking about what, $35,000 to $50,000 a year, and perhaps this is too much. And making thirty-five dollars to $50,000 a year as a full-time content creator is not necessarily that hard, you know, if you if you think through uh, making educational content, making entertainment content from Substack um, newsletters to whatever. So you have a ton of small tools and vertical tools that already allows you to to monetize from thirty thousand to fifty thousand uh, dollars a year. So. Naturally, if we compare with salaries in San Francisco, New York, or Wall Street and tech, it's not even comparable. But so to sum up my, my guess is first, there is a lack of ownership on the financial upside for the creator. And I don't believe the biggest platforms will be the ones to drive that financial upside. Um, second is, I think we are exactly at the same moment as we were back in the, the 80s with the birth of the personal computer when nobody... No, wait, wait. I, I want to unpack this. Are you saying that the DAO is the thing that the big platforms are not seeing? Or are they seeing what's going on with decentralized autonomous organizations and crypto and saying, oh shit, like that's going to completely disrupt us. And so therefore we need to neutralize it by starting to pay the creators directly ourselves so that they don't exactly. actually self-organize. Both, both, both of them, because DAO, DAOs allow you for tokenization, so you can already give some financial upside for creators. Who ah, okay, so, and, so uh, let me pause I, you for a second, because I think this is actually a very interesting sorry. thought and idea, which is the transactional nature of these payments. Right. So if Twitter, you know, pays those of us who are on stage today, because let's say that I sold, uh, you know, tickets to this space, what I'm not getting are shares of Twitter to then actually vote on the business of Twitter. But if this were exactly. a Dow run space in hypothetical space, which, you know, is still somewhat speculative, then mm -hmm. everyone who's here could, you know, receive some payment in crypto, which we could convert into fiat if we want, or, you know, buy and sell amongst ourselves. Yeah. And maybe we could also get some votes on what happens next in the organization or features or whatever. Exactly. And, 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 Exactly that, Chris. So if you were able to create... A Who is doing this? Because I see a lot of people talking about DAOs and sort of like like building scaffolding of DAOs, but when it comes to the actual governance and effectiveness, it feels like there's a lot of things that are being created that are brand new that, you know, I, I, I haven't seen a DAO that's like, you know, 30 years old yet or something. Yeah, no, it doesn't exist. Even yesterday, I was telling David who is one of the biggest gurus about DAOs right now here on Twitter. And I was telling him that we cannot start talking about DAOs without revisiting the birth of democracy. You know, we, we <laughs> almost have to go back. To I, I don't disagree, but... Uh -huh. because, yeah, just because a DAO to me, it may seem completely absurd, but is like if capitalism and communism make a sun, you know? So theoretically, is really awkward to me to think about a DAO because it means that 
almost everybody will have democratically a vote about the system and the vision of the infrastructure and their you know uh, one thing that I, w- at I like, the same time with the financial upside a capitalization uh, you know I don't mean to like totally cut you off, but I do think it's going to be very interesting. And I would actually apply Simon's test to DAOs, which is whether it's a hundred pieces of content on that platform that will start to determine whether you have a chance of being successful as a creator on that platform. I would imagine that for DAOs, you have to have the participants vote at least a hundred times to see if the DAO is actually going to have any viability. Because I do think that there's so many things that are attracting our attention and financial upside, of course, is one way to get people to stay dedicated to a cause. But there's a lot of games now that are kind of like taking up our attention and time. And I don't know, like, you know, I'm probably doing it wrong, but I'm in like 35 or 40 or 60 different discords, all constructing these same organizations. And I'm trying to think about how I might vote in each. And I have a hard enough time like voting in my local elections. So yeah, yeah, yeah. I like the I idea. And yeah. I'm, I'm not, I don't mean to be skeptical. I think it is interesting to put these things together and to take the point that you're making, which is that the DAO, or at least that structure, and the creators in that side economy, in the Web3 economy, the decentralized economy, may be more of a threat to these big platforms in a way that they don't understand yet. Is that a good summary? Or I, I think that's right, Chris. By the way, if I would add, yeah, I think it's, it's not limited to um, a voice, though, ownership, and then I think also co-creation, right? So you know how we were yeah. speaking earlier about sort of managing, moderating, all these thousands of tasks that that we have to replace in sort of creating our own platforms. Yes. Our community provides all of those tools. We don't necessarily have like financial compensation, but, you know, if they start to operate... When you say our community, like actually, you know, for Greg and Simon, I'd love for you guys to talk specifically about your audience and about some of your successes to make it a little bit more um, concrete. Like, what are those interactions like and how much of the overhead, I mean, Greg, maybe it's a little bit different for you, but I imagine you're doing some of the creator stuff. How much are you able to delegate to members of your community? What does that feel like? How do you establish trust? Like, how long do people stick around? How, how many people are you able to support with the kind of creator microeconomy that you've created around yourselves? Yeah, I, and I think, um, you know, so I'll use the analogy of Twitch is probably the closest yeah. presentation kind of types of things we do. Twitch has two currencies at any time, right? They have like channel points, which is a reflection of your enduring participation in the community, right? Um, yep. And then they also have bits, which is like mm-hmm. fiat-based currency, which allows you to do it. Something like a third of Twitch's revenue, though, is actually gifted subs because people want other people to be part of the community, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. So there's like a massive opportunity there. Now, inside of any Twitch ecosystem, though, you have like active moderators, you have people who work on thumbnails, you have people who are doing clips from your videos as they're happening, you have people, um, you know, reviewing new applications. You know, like sorry, this sounds a lot like an open source product project, but like applied to content. Very much. Okay. It, it, exactly the analogy, cool. right? Um, and I think you remember uh, our friend uh, Xavier Deman, he started uh, Open Collective, hmm. which was like a open protocol kind of for funding open source projects. Mm-hmm. A lot of like what DAOs are doing, I think, is basically an analog in the universe of like how how does a solo media business, like say with one property, ten interests, or expanding interests over time, involve uh, create employees and then also more like a co op almost, right? Like so right. you're like, dang, great, I'm gonna pr- I'm gonna do this, and five percent of the revenue or profit sharing is gonna happen back to all the participants in this in this thing, right? From this actual business. I guess I'm asking you guys specifically if you have experience with this and operating this as opposed to what you've observed. 
Yeah, Simon, specifically, uh, uh, again, to come back to Charlie Wurzel's uh, yeah. uh, essay, he, he spoke to this about how he felt like, um, you know, if, if, you, if you sell out to advertisers, you're selling out to, you know, corporate interests that uh, there's only a certain level of discourse that they will accept. But one of the things that he pointed out was that he felt like his audience, he felt maybe uncomfortably owned by his audience where he he had to create a certain type of content that his audience demanded that they felt they had ownership over what he was producing uh, specifically Simon for what you do have you experienced that as well with your you know quote unquote community like do you feel an obligation to produce a certain type of content that you your audience expects or demands. No, and I and the, you know I've interviewed lots of Substack creators, lots of people within the creator economy who have subscription-based uh, business models like Substack, and I've never really heard that. I think like most people understand that they're only kicking in six to ten dollars a month, and. Um, and that there really is no, and they're one of like literally thousands of people, and there are no expectations there that they have any kind of uh, control. So I was really, you know, surprised to hear that. Certainly, I definitely get feedback. But the great thing about Substack or some of these other platforms is all they have to do is just hit reply on their email address, you know, on the newsletter, and their reply goes directly to my inbox. So I do get feedback that way, but no, nothing that you know resembled any kind of quid. Pro quo or somebody hanging their subscription over my head like that. So you, just like, you feel you feel free as a creator is what you're saying. Still, you you, you still feel like you're your own boss. Yeah, certainly, and, and you know, and I have a lot of experience working for mainstream media. You know, I freelance from everywhere from the Atlantic to New York Magazine. I was an editor at U.S. News and World Report. You know, I I really just did not like being edited. I love the freedom of basically, you know, being able to pick every single thing I'm going to write about and which week I'm going to write about and how I'm going to cover it. And I really feel like it's just complete 100% freedom, and that's what I love about it. So one thing just on that experience that, and I, I did pin the tweet with um, the Charlie Warzel um, commentary about, I guess, the sort of... I don't know, like expectation that people who are paying for your work start to have expectations um, about, you know, that you work for them effectively for like $6 a month or some crazy amount. Um, what do you think about the difference between, I guess, people who maybe worked in newsrooms or for, you know, larger media organizations and their accessibility to their audience by moving to a place like Substack or running their own newsletter? Because I would imagine that the like the artifice of these media companies actually protects and defends them against, you know, the thousand cuts from their fans. Like once you're out there, like you're kind of it's open season and you've got to really develop a thick skin. And so if you're a writer that is not used to being criticized, you know, kind of on the open web, then that might feel a lot more, you know, caustic and sharp and biting than what you were used to before. Yeah, I mean, but that's you're not immune from that if you're, um, you know, working for a mainstream media company. I mean, yeah. case in point, 
Taylor Lorenz. Sure. Uh, she's, t- she's taken a hiatus from Twitter right now to write her book, uh, but she's been subjected to, you know, a ton of abuse on Twitter. Um, so I feel like journalists are certainly way more responsive, um, you know, to their audience today and to, to the point where I mm-hmm. think it actually really influences their writing. You know, I think back when I was at U.S. News and World Report and running all their social media accounts, like we had comment sections, but I don't, I don't think there was a single journalist who worked there who ever actually <laughs> looked well, you're not supposed section. to read the comments, technically. So, <laughs> yeah. Um, so, uh, I think you know, especially with Twitter and how how hyper reactive or uh, how how much journalists are how twitchy to Twitter. It is, yeah. Uh, I think you know they are incredibly reactive and responsive to their audience now, much more than any other point in history. If that's what you're asking. Yeah, no, I think that's that's a big part of it, right? And in terms of the the creator economy and the interactions that happen there and the support that you get, you know, whether it's financial or whether it's emotional or whatever else, like there's just sort of a rawness and a I don't know, type of connectivity that's very new and we're still figuring out what type of, you know, meaning or value to transmit you know, between those or through those questions, those, those connections rather. Yeah. Um, You know, what's one cool thing that mm -hmm. I get to do that most journalists don't do is like, I get on phone calls with my subscribers all the time. Like Mm -hmm. I'm not one of those, uh, star subscribe Substack writers who have 10,000, you know, paying subscribers. Um, and so whenever a new subscriber comes in and it looks like they do something interesting, um, you know, they work in a field that I find interesting. Maybe they're, you know, I think they might be a potential guest on my podcast or something. You know, I just respond directly to uh, the the email notification I get that they subscribed and and will like email them directly and uh, sometimes even offer to get on the phone but every single one of my subscribers I at least exchange a few emails with and like every time almost every time I do it like there's this you know feeling of surprise that they have because they're not used to subscribing to things and getting like a one to one response back and obviously mm-hmm. that has a hard time scaling the bigger that you become like mm-hmm. obviously a Mr Beast can't do that at least him directly like he might hire someone who could do something like that. Um, but that's the great thing about, um, you know, uh, who, who is the fit Paul Graham who said in the beginning, do things in the beginning of do things that don't do, scale, do things that don't scale. And like, I really t- took that to heart. And that's one of the great things hmm. about building a, you know, a creator economy business is you can actually talk to your audience. Well, I love that. Let's, let's leave it there. Um, Greg, Simon, thank you guys so much for coming. We'd love to hear where people can find you. If you guys have anything you want to plug or have people read Substack, you know, startup, Nazar Chance, um, where do you want to direct people to? Uh, sure. Yeah. Feel free to check out Zealous. Uh, we're zealous.app. Um, just launched uh, not too long ago. We're in beta right now. Congrats. Happy to have one here. Try it out. Uh, and I also host a show three times a week on the creator economy. Uh, so createdeconomy.com. Nice. Uh, feel free to hit that up. And we're we, more of the industry side. So we, we interview and talk to builders, uh, uh, largely building and creating tools for creators. Love it. I would uh, encourage people to listen to my podcast called The Business of Content. And every single week I have on a different entrepreneur who usually has built a bootstrapped content business, whether it's on Substack or YouTube or a podcast or whatever. And I will, and Brian knows this because he's been on my podcast. (laughs) I will walk them through from the very beginning of how they launched it to, you know, how they made their first dollar to how they started making it as a full-time income. And so if you want to learn from people who built these creator economy businesses from soup to nuts, uh, this is the, you know, the perfect podcast for you to listen to. Highly, highly recommended, of course. That's awesome. Brian, anything else? 
Uh, no. Uh, I was listening to a great episode of How Did This Get Made before we started this. <laughs> <laughs> the Drop Dead Fred episode of How Did This Get Made was making me laugh out loud, and my wife was wondering what the hell was going on. Uh, so I'll plug that. Chris, what do you want to plug? Um, what do I want to plug? Well, uh, I don't have anything specific. However, I think next week um, we're going to try something a little bit different. Um, I spent the last uh, two and a half, three weeks traveling to New England. And while I was there, I actually visited with my family and a bunch of my um, nephews and my younger brother. And they have a very interesting business. And I want to bring them on to have them give us a, essentially a view, perhaps from the future, from the younger generation, um, since we're bringing the kind of like, okay, boomer view to uh, meta and the metaverse. And I think that they will have a very enlightening perspective, um, given what they're doing. So I would say stay tuned for that. Okay, everybody, that was the show. Uh, this is the Tech Meme Ride Home Experience. And um, I'm your host, Chris, with Brian. Thanks again, Greg and Simon. And we will see you here next week. Thank you, Simon and Greg. Bye, everybody. Bye, everybody. Bye, everybody.